I was wearing clothes, but they were pretty much like two pairs of very weird pants. One of them had like my kids had spilled spaghetti sauce down them. I was wearing like a pajama shirt. I had short brown hair that was greasy, like I had forgotten to wash it, and I had forgotten to put any makeup on. So I'm at least dressed, so I think, okay, <sighs> we're starting off better than in my dream last night. Um, can you hear me okay now? Okay. So first of all, too, this has nothing to do with Romans 2, but I didn't get your name, but if you have one of those awesome cookies, what was your name? Rachel, can we, like, round of applause for Rachel, okay? She walked through with this platter of cookies that were shaped in the hexagon with the nurture symbols on them. And I don't know, Katie keeps talking about veryness to me. That is your veryness because there is no way in a million years, even if someone paid me, I could create something like that. So that was very impressive. Thanks, Rachel. So, all right. Whew. Good morning. I'm Allison, and I am here to talk to you today about circumcision. <laughs> Let's just put that right out here, okay? You didn't accidentally step back in time to your junior high health class. This is nurture. It's a women's gathering. But today we're talking about male circumcision. I told Mark before I started, I go, I don't have slides this week. I know I'm a big slide person when I share. I like to have, like, images and diagrams. <laughs> But I did not do that this week. So no slides, no images, just me talking. So whew, I have to say, as a woman in 2018, and first of all, too, just as a quick little disclaimer, we are going to talk about circumcision a lot today, but we are talking about male circumcision, not the horrific act of female circumcision. Put that out of your mind. That is not what the Bible is talking about. That is not what we're talking about. So just to clear that up. So as a woman, the most really I've ever thought about circumcision is I have three sons and in the hospital I had to say like, yep, sure, do it. Or nope, don't do it, right? After that, I don't really think about it, do you? So in chapter two, when you kept reading circumcision, uncircumcision, circumcision, uncircumcision, were you sitting there reading and going, what in the world is going on? Was it a little bit confusing this week? Going, what is Paul talking about? And what, how is this even relevant for me? He's saying this over and over and over. What does this have to do with me? So if you were wondering any of that this week when you were doing your Bible study, don't worry, we're going to try to make a little bit more sense of it this morning. So first of all, we're going to keep in mind who Paul is and who he's talking to. So Paul in Philippians 3, which wasn't in your reading, but just something that I'm sharing with you, Philippians 3, Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That was Paul. That was his life. That was his resume. Those were his credentials before he met Jesus. In week one of our group, we talked about Acts 9 a little bit. It was referenced in your booklet that that's the story of Paul, who was Saul at the time. He was a known persecutor of the church. He's walking on the road to Damascus, and he meets Jesus, and it transforms his life completely. Now, at the time that he is writing the letter to the church in Rome, he is a sold-out follower of Christ. He's traveling the region. He's planting churches. He's preaching the gospel. 
he's encouraging fellow believers. He hasn't actually been to the church in Rome that he's writing to, but he is sending them this letter. Now, the church in Rome, what we know about it is that we know that it brought together people who might not otherwise have been together. Mainly, it brought together Gentiles, who were the non-Jews, that had been converted to follow Christ, and it brought together some Jews who had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So it's a diverse group of people. And to understand chapter 2 this morning, what I want us to do is imagine that we in this room are that church in Rome. Imagine that we are receiving this letter from Paul. It shouldn't actually be too hard for us to imagine this because like the church in Rome, we're a pretty diverse group of people in here. We didn't all grow up in the same church. We didn't all grow up in the same kind of church. We didn't all grow up in church at all. We come from different backgrounds. Some of us have been walking with Jesus most of our lives, and some of us are here still wondering, what do I even think about who Jesus is? So picture that Paul wrote this letter to us. Now, he wrote it to bridge some of the gap in the church between the us and the them mentality that was going on at the time. And throughout the letter, he weaves one main important purpose, which is to explain that salvation is through the gospel of Jesus for both Jews and Gentiles. He continuously proclaims this gospel throughout everything in this letter. Now remember also from week one, the gospel, what did we define that as? The good news, right. Okay, so the gospel is good news. Imagine, like it said at the, in chapter one in our booklet, that it's like somebody coming into town and proclaiming some awesome news for everybody. That is what Paul is doing. He's sharing this gospel. He's proclaiming like he's screaming it on a loudspeaker in this letter, the gospel, the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is. Now, in this section that we're reading today, Romans chapter 2, Paul kicks it off by actually addressing the issue of people judging other people in the church. He says at the very beginning, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The Jewish believers in the church in Rome were judging others in the church, but not using what they knew about the law to judge their own conditions. They were not checking themselves. Paul says that they are judging people for doing certain things and yet turning around and doing the same things, whether that was saying don't steal and then turning around and stealing or don't commit adultery and then turning around and committing adultery. He's addressing their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. Now, those are big words, but let me tell you, my hypocrisy, all you have to do is look in the last week At the number of times I yelled at my kids this last week to stop yelling at your brother, right? (laughs) Stop yelling at your sibling. It is not loving, and it is not what God wants you to do, right? Hypocrisy. What am I being? Not loving and not treating them the way God would want me to treat them. So hypocrisy is probably something that we can all relate to at least a little bit. So again, the Jewish believers in this church were judging others in the church and not using their knowledge of the law to check themselves. 
In this section, Paul also refers to the law a lot. Now, Jews would have been, the Jewish people in the church would have been familiar with what that meant. The law is the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses by God as part of his covenant with the people of Israel. I'm going to read something verbatim from a commentary that I read that kind of helped with this. It says, the law was given specifically to Israel, but it rests on eternal moral principles that are consistent with God's character. Thus, it's a summary of fundamental and universal moral standards. It expresses the essence of what God requires of people. That's why when God judges, he can be impartial. Gentiles will not be judged by the law, Romans 2.12, since it was not given to them, but they will still be judged by the same righteous standard that underlies the law. And that judgment is God's judgment, not our judging one another, right? So all this talk about the law in this section, also as you were reading this week, might have made you think it kind of seems like Paul is teaching that we're justified by what we do, by our actions, by our deeds, by following the law. But we know from elsewhere in Scripture, and specifically the next chapter, Romans 3, 28, he says, we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So what point could Paul be making here when he says this to them? So here's where we're going to get into what the deal with circumcision is. So Paul addresses the Jews who claim to rely on the law. They know the law. They grew up with the law. They are familiar with the law. And they are circumcised, but they're breaking the law. Versus the Gentile who's uncircumcised but keeping the law. So a quick history lesson because God's covenant of circumcision began all the way back in Genesis with Abraham in Genesis 17. So who's Abraham? We're bringing in like another person here. So a few years ago, I have a kind of a quick funny story about Abraham. A few years ago, my two oldest kids were just at the right age to start going to VBS where we lived before this. And so they go to VBS, they came home, they were little, and they start singing all their VBS songs, and they're so happy, and they're so cute, and they get done, and they look at us, to my husband and I, and they say, what VBS songs did you guys sing when you were our age? And we both looked at each other, and we both grew up in pretty traditional churches of the 80s, so we look at each other, and we go, um, Father Abraham? And we start singing. Now, I'm not a singer, but it goes, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. You start moving your right arm, okay? <laughs> then it goes to your left arm. You keep singing the same thing over, right foot, left foot, right? Carly's going to start using this at the bridge, right? <laughs> let's think about it. This song makes no sense, right? Like, what? Does it tell us who Abraham is? It doesn't make any sense. I think it was just a way to get us to, like, burn energy, during Sunday school, but we sing this song for my kids because it was the one we could remember. And my son looks at me very skeptically and goes, our VBS songs are way better than your Abraham Lincoln song. <laughs> so even he was really confused. So we're not talking about Abraham Lincoln, okay? We're talking about Abraham, our forefather from the Bible. So going back to Genesis 17, if you want, again, I didn't make slides, but if you want to flip there, if you have your Bible, you can. Genesis 17, Abraham at the time is 99 years old. He's known as Abram, and his wife is Sarai, and they have no 
children together. God appears to Abram, changes his name to Abraham, changes his wife's name to Sarah, and promises that he is going to be the father of many nations. So stop and think about this for a second. You are 99 years old. Your wife is barren, and God tells you you're going to be the father of many nations. He tells him that kings will be descended from him, that he will establish a covenant or a promise with his offspring. He's going to give them land, and he's going to be their God. So this is what God is promising to Abraham. Now, Genesis 17, 9 through 14, I'm going to read this directly out of Scripture also. It's a little confusing, but stick with me. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who's not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is not of your offspring shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So you see, circumcision, when God made that covenant with Abraham, it was intended to be an outward physical sign for the Jewish people that they were God's covenant people that they were the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. It was meant to show their covenant with God. It was an outward sign of their inward heart that they were the followers, the people, the chosen ones of God. So a good Jewish male would have been circumcised on the eighth day, just as Paul said he was. Now... Go back to the church in Rome. The Jews in the church in Rome are telling the non-Jewish followers of Christ that they need to follow this same rule and have this same outward sign. But Paul, in Romans chapter 2, shuts this down. And he says to them in Romans 2.29, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So you see, Paul is saying a circumcised Jew can't just be a follower of God on the outside, right? You can't just perform this outward symbol and then be done with it. The outward sign means nothing without their inward reality of their faith that they were, in fact, a follower of God. The external obedience doesn't mean anything if it's not spurred on from an inward heart attitude. So Paul is making the case here to this church in Rome that an uncircumcised Gentile who has faith 
doesn't have to be physically circumcised in order to be accepted by God, right? So let's stop here for a second and try to imagine this scenario. Remember that this church had brought together these different groups of people that would have never been together otherwise. I mean, stop and think about that. That is a beautiful thing. And here they are kind of bickering over a rule, right? We don't know exactly what it looked like or felt like to be in that church in Rome. But again, pretend that this is us, that we are this church in Rome. And let's try to imagine because we know that it was a big enough problem that word of this going on was making its way to Paul, who hasn't even been to the church himself. But he's heard enough about this going on that he's addressing it right away in Romans chapter 2 of his letter. Now, let's... Think of us today. Maybe male circumcision isn't the issue that we struggle with today in the church. I haven't really heard many arguments about that recently. Maybe, maybe you have. I don't know. But stop and think for a moment. What are some of the rules that we maybe impose on one another and silently judge each other for within the church body? Do you ever say in your head, right? She can't really be a follower of Christ until she does this. Or maybe it's about yourself. Maybe sometimes you feel like, I, I can't really be a follower of Christ until I do this. I have a little story kind of to illustrate this from my life. So I, um, as I mentioned with the Abraham song, I did grow up in a pretty traditional church, but I grew up in one where I was baptized as a baby. I grew up, I went away to college, and the church that I went to there was very big on baptism is your choice when you're older. Now, not really at the time, being 18 years old, understanding the heart behind this, all I heard was, here is a rule you have to follow. You're here now in this church, you have to be baptized. Now, I'm a rule follower by nature. I haven't taken a personality test, but I, whatever one says rule follower, that's me. But... I don't give in to peer pressure. So that, to me, felt like peer pressure. I'm like, I know my faith is real. I don't have to go be baptized again to show my faith. I know that it's real. So I got very, like, stubborn and obstinate about that, and I missed the complete heart behind it, and I just focused on the rule and the checklist. Now, fast forward, and several years after that, the Holy Spirit was the one that actually worked on my heart. And I began to see baptism as an outward response of my inward faith. So then I was actually baptized around the age of 24. I had been a follower of Jesus for many years, but I finally came to where I understood that I wanted to do this outward act to reflect my faith in Jesus, not because someone told me I had to check it off a box. So I was baptized at 24, not out of guilt, not out of compulsion, but out of a response to Jesus and the fact that he loved me enough to die on the cross for me, and I wanted to publicly proclaim that through the act of baptism. So maybe that's not a perfect illustration, or maybe it does help you understand it, but imagine this group of us here. Like the church in Rome, as we talked about, there are people here from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, all different families, all different stories in this group together. 
So what if, as we gathered here this morning and we were having breakfast and Katie told us to talk about first, what if I walked around instead and I said, hey, how old were you when you were baptized? Or, hey, what version of the Bible are you, did you bring with you today? Is it, I got to make sure it's an okay version, you know? Uh, or did you, do you go to church every single Sunday? Have you been here every week? Did you tithe this month? How would, how would that feel? Wouldn't that feel really yucky if I was walking around kind of confronting people on some of these rules and kind of making my own little checklist for you, right? So that, again, we don't know exactly what it felt like in the church in Rome, but that's kind of how I imagined it sort of felt between the Jews and the Gentiles in that group. Like, here we are. We're all here together to worship Jesus, and you're telling me I have to go be circumcised? It doesn't even make sense, you know, and so... Put yourself in those shoes and just feel for a moment what that might feel like. Now, don't worry. I'm not actually going to do that. It's just an illustration. But how many silent little judgments do we sometimes make with one another? Not just here, but kind of at any gathering of believers. Do you ever sit there and think, well, I'm glad she's coming to church now, but now she also needs to come to weekly Bible study. I'm glad she's here, but she needs to learn how to pray out loud now. Okay, she's been coming <laughs> every Sunday. <laughs> These aren't meant to call anyone out. These were just the examples I thought of. She's been coming regularly. She's got to serve now in this area. She's got to be baptized. She's got to take communion. I mean, have we all at some point in it or another at one point sat in communion and kind of silently judged the people that didn't stand up, right? I mean, it's yucky. It feels yucky to sit and judge one another over these checklist items. Now, none of those things, I want to be clear about this, are bad things. Those are good things. It was right for me to decide to be baptized as a response to my faith. It would have been okay for the Gentiles in the church in Rome to decide to be circumcised. Paul wasn't saying that that was wrong to be circumcised. He's saying it is wrong to make that the requirement for faith. It is wrong to make that checklist and judge each other on it when you yourself are breaking laws and rules and things on the checklist. He is teaching, he's leveling the playing field between the Jews and the non-Jews in this church, and he's leveling the playing field for us. The point that he is making about circumcision is the same point we can make here. These good things result from our faith. They are not the requirement for our faith. So he's teaching us here that our salvation is not the result of following rules or performing certain acts, but... It is about our heart, and it's by the Spirit. Remember, this is the same Paul who wrote in Philippians 3 about all of his credentials, his list, his resume, all the things that he had been doing right for God. And yet, who was Paul at that time? Someone whose heart was actually so far from God that he was seeking to destroy the followers of Christ. So he was getting the checklist right, right? but he was persecuting actual followers of Christ. It didn't line up. His heart and his rule following did not match. He was 
the prime example to us of someone who can follow the rules, but whose heart can be far from God. He went on in Philippians 3 right after that list in that description to say, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, the law was not given to us to be able to meet it on our own. The law was given to us to show us that we, on our own, never will, that we can't. We will always fall short if we try to meet the law because we need a Savior and we need his loving grace. Now that Jesus has come, salvation is a free gift for all of us. We don't have to earn it. Yet sometimes, if we're honest, and this is what struck me personally when I was reading this, I think sometimes it's easier to focus on the rules and the checklist sometimes. Do you think that maybe somewhere along the way between Abraham, when God gave the covenant of circumcision and said, this is an outward sign that you are my chosen people, somewhere between that and Paul now addressing the church in Rome, that some male Jews were going through the act of circumcision just to go through the motions, and it wasn't actually meaning anything for them about their faith anymore? Well, my realization was that I think sometimes, if I'm really honest with myself, there are times in my life where I kind of wish it was about the checklist. It would be nice every now and then to think, okay, all I have to do is show up on Sunday, show up on Thursday, pray for like two minutes before bed, and I'm good. That's my walk with God, right? There's some times where it feels like that would be a little bit easier, but it misses the point completely. It's not about just be circumcised to show you belong to God's family and then you're done. And it never was, not even back at Genesis 17. It was not God's original intention and it's not the point here. So a few questions to think about and ask ourselves from this section. Am I looking to outward credentials to justify me in my walk with God? Am I building up my spiritual resume by listing off the things that I do for God but actually, my heart is far from him. Now, we all go through seasons where we don't feel close to God. That's, that's okay. But is following the rules replacing my relationship with him? Or maybe, like the Jews in the Roman church, are you requiring other people to check off certain boxes before you'll consider them a true follower of Christ and a fellow heir with him? What internal prejudices might you be struggling with? Do you ever find yourself silently judging other believers? How do Paul's words to the church in Rome speak to this? Or like I mentioned before, do you ever judge yourself and think, I can't actually be a follower of Christ until I do this, this, and this? What things are holding you back and making you feel like, I can't be close to God until I dot, dot, dot. Again, these are good things, but they are things that result from our faith. They are not the checklist for our faith. Because here's what's coming up in Romans chapter 3. We're mainly on chapter 2, but next week we're going to talk about chapter 3. And here's what Paul is going to make clear in chapter 3. He is going to make it super clear that everyone, both the Jews and the non-Jews, are under sin. He says that all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God, that all are justified by God's grace as a gift 
that we couldn't earn. That all of our redemption comes from Jesus dying on the cross and taking the place that we deserved for the punishment for our sins. So what business do we have judging one another? And then in chapter 4, Paul's going to go on and he's going to bring up Abraham again, not Lincoln, and he's going to talk about Abraham's faith as an example for us. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a couple of weeks, but I think Abraham's example of faith is a really good place for us to end on today. You see, as a reminder, Abraham was the one who received the covenant of circumcision, and yet it says in Romans 4 that his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Now, when I think about credited, I try to understand, and maybe this isn't a perfect analogy either, but imagine you had a credit card and you racked up a ton of debt on it, and then someone came along and said, you don't owe that anymore. It's gone. And you know what? You're not even known as a debtor anymore. You are credited this righteousness. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to get it, but it was given to you. That when God sees you, you look righteous to him. So Abraham was the one who received circumcision, and it says this about his faith. It says, in hope, he believed against hope that God would do what he said. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, and he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So you see, Abraham didn't just believe in God, but he believed God. And that's a big difference right there, right? It's one thing for us to believe in God. It is another thing to believe God. It was about Abraham's heart, and his faith was real. And he is an example for us that Paul brings up because what he says is that in the same way that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, our faith will be counted to us as righteousness if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that God delivered Christ up for our sins. By that, we are justified. By that, we are counted as righteous before God because of Jesus. And that is the good news that Paul is preaching. That is the gospel. Let's pray, and then we're going to, um, Jaleesa is going to lead us in some time of worship together.